Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we come before you um, with all kinds of defenses against you. Um, whether they're defenses of our own goodness, our own righteousness, or whether they're defenses of hurt that other people have done to us, or whether they're defenses of just a very difficult drive here with children, or um, some difficulties at work that we're dwelling on, Lord. There's a bunch of reasons we wouldn't listen to you this morning. And Lord, we know, though, that the thing we need most is to hear from our Father. And so we pray that you would wipe away all of those concerns for this time, that you would help us to focus in on your word, Lord, that we'd help us to hear from you, that your word would be something savory and tasty and delicious to our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are inclined to not only love your word, but want to do it by the power of your spirit. Uh, We thank you so much. You've been so good to us to consistently come and meet with us here. And so we're excited to do it again in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at a particular issue that you may have never had addressed before in church. And it's the issue of judgmentalism, as you saw in that text there in Matthew 7. And it's a sin, guys, that often kind of flies under the radar in churches. Would you guys agree with that? It often kind of flies under the radar in churches. There was a, a few years ago, there was an author named Jerry Bridges, and he wrote a book called Respectable Sins. And in there, he had a section on judgmentalism. And he, what he meant by it being a respectable sin is not that it's not harmful, but that it's, a, it's something that goes unnoticed. Um, you can be very judgmental and not see it as a problem. It's something that goes hidden. And I love, guys, that here we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We're uh, one more message away from being done with it. And I just love how when we look here and Jesus is laying out the commands for how to live in the kingdom now, that a command against judgmentalism is one of his things. This is a core command of how we live the kingdom life now. Isn't that great? Don't you just love that that's here? You know, because this is something, guys, that if you've wrestled with it, if it's been something in your heart that you see in there and you don't like it, it is just an icky thing to have. It's a burden to have. It's something that um, is is a uh, a pain to us. So what does Jesus mean when he says don't judge? I mean, this really is a favorite verse in our culture, isn't it? Along with God is love and God gave every green herb of the field for man. Like those would be three really beloved verses in our culture, wouldn't they? And what's he saying here? Is he saying that, you know, you can't tell me that I'm wrong in what I do. You can't tell me that I'm wrong in what I'm thinking. Is that what Jesus is saying? It certainly isn't what Jesus is saying here. Um, We know, for example, that Jesus taught us as Christians to correct our brothers and sisters when they're in sin. It's kind of a judgment, right? To say, hey, there's something I see here I really want to help you with, but this is sinful. Uh, We see that in Matthew 18, 5. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault alone between you and him alone. Um, We also know that we're to judge the validity of Christian teaching. If you drop down a little bit in this chapter in verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inward are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. So we're called to judge doctrine. We're called to judge teaching and to look out for false teaching. We're also called, guys, to go into all the world with a message that the culture won't necessarily like. In Matthew 28, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Now, this message that Jesus has given is that he is the exclusive Lord of the world, okay? That Jesus is the exclusive Lord of the world, and his teachings are the exclusive way to God. And we're called to take that message out into the world. And so, by definition, when we take this good news into the world, we're saying all other paths are fake news, 
right? We're saying that all other paths are false if we're going to give Jesus as the exclusive way. So Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't make moral judgments. He's not saying we can't make exclusive truth claims. Um, because people, guys, can be deeply divided over those things and still love and respect each other. No, Jesus is going after a deeper issue. It's an issue of the heart. It's a disease of the heart. It's the sin of judgmentalism. And older authors actually covered this a lot. When you read the Puritans and people like that, they covered this a lot. What they called it back in the day, like in the 1600s, Richard Baxter and them, they called it censoriousness, which sounds even dirtier, doesn't it? You know, think about judgmentalism and you go, censoriousness. I really love me some censoriousness. Doesn't that sound creepy? You know? And it is creepy. It's a, it's, a, it's a creepy sin. It's something, it's a sickness of the heart. It's a habit, guys, of looking for and finding fault in other people. Okay? It's a pastime of doing that. It's a critical spirit. It's a condemning attitude. And it's a rampant cancer in our culture, guys. You know, people often object to Christianity and they say, well, Christians are so judgmental. But the truth is, guys, people are so judgmental and Christians are people. Okay, but we actually have the least excuse for our judgmentalism, as we'll find out a little bit later. But this is a common impulse of people. It's relentless. I posted a question on Facebook just to see what people would say, and I said, what are some of the common ways people in our culture judge each other? Huge response, okay? Lots of people had things to say about it, and they said things like this. People judge other people about looks, um, their education level, um, politics. No, 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 we never do that. Weight. The car you drive, the way you drive that car, okay? Um, besetting sins, meaning that, you know, I'll look at the sins that you kind of wrestle with and struggle with and see those as worse than the ones that I wrestle and struggle with, right? Um, the, how we spend our money, what you eat. I mean, we're a culture that has so much food and stuff like that that we can judge each other based on, you know, you going organic, are you doing this, are you doing that, right? Is that sustainable? You know what you're eating there? A big one, guys, is parenting, Parenting was huge. I went through the list with Tosh, and we were like, okay, parenting's definitely the biggest category here. How many children you have, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a working mom, whether you homeschool or Christian school or public school, whether you vaccinate or don't vaccinate, whether, how you discipline them, um, how they act in public, right? It's a huge list that people are saying, this is the way that I feel judged. I feel like people judge people this way. Facebook response was huge, guys, because Jesus here is hitting on a huge area that we all need help obviously, right? I could have put a lot of questions about a lot of other things on there and there'd be no response, but this was big. And what's behind this kind of relentless human urge to judge each other? And how do we break free from it? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Notice in verse 5, though, that Jesus calls judgmentalism hypocrisy. He says, you hypocrite. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is pretending. A judgmental heart, it turns out, is a pretending heart. And I want to show you four ways that the judgmental heart pretends. Okay, so that's what we'll do this morning. The first one is, a judgmental heart pretends to need no grace. Take a look at verse 1. Judge not that you will not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. A judgmental heart, guys, takes a godlike stance towards the world. Okay? It, it, it pretends that it needs no grace. It's as if there's kind of two columns in the world. There's the sinless column. God's in that column. And then there's the sinner column. We're all in that column. When we judge other people, when we're judgmental, we're putting ourselves in the column with God. And we're getting in that column, and then we're judging outside from there. We're pretending we need no grace. When we're judgmental, we're acting as if we meet God's standard, we measure up to God's law, and we need no forgiveness. And we're putting ourselves in a sinless column that only God belongs in. And I love what Jesus does here because he basically calls our bluff, right? 
He goes, oh, okay, that's what you want to do? He goes, okay, how about I judge you by the standards you use to judge other people? How about I do that? Does that sound like a good plan? And then he goes, how about I deal out grace to you the way you deal out grace to other people? Sounds a lot like what we saw in the Lord's Prayer, right? When he said to pray for forgiveness, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Anybody want that deal? Right? In the parallel passage in Luke 6, he says this, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. And then he describes grace like this. This is so cool. Give and it will be given to you. And he says this, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and uh, it'll flow over into your lap. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. It's really cool because he gives this image of like God giving grace to us. He says like grain. You bring up your bag. He pours it in. He goes, no, 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 let's pat it down so we get more in there. And he's like, then let's shake it, right, to get even more in. Then, he's, then I'm going to pour it in, and I'm going to like just going to spill over into your lap. And so what he's saying here is he's saying, be like that, right? Judge people with the kind of generous standard you want used against you. And deal out your grace. Don't deal it out in, in the stingy way that you've been dealing out. Deal it out liberally the way God has liberally dealt grace to you. Measured, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over into your lap. Secondly, judgmental heart pretends to see. Take a look at verse 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and don't notice the log that's in your own eye? We, we saw that um, we take a, our judgmental heart takes a godlike stance towards people claiming it needs no grace. But it also acts godlike by saying it can see into people's hearts. And we've all done this, right? Where we've assigned motives and we've thought we knew what other people's intentions were. When we're judgmental, we not only assess people's actions, we tend to judge their intentions and their motives as well. We claim to see into people in a way only God can see. We need to be careful anytime we catch ourselves, guys, assigning motives to other people. Because the fact is, the truth is, we know almost nothing about other people and why they do what they do. We think we do, but we don't. We need to assume a stance of we're a creature, we're not the creator, we're sinners, we're not God, we don't know what's going on inside someone else's heart. Jesus is saying that we're really, we're blind. Verse 3 says, why don't you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that's in your own eye. The image here is kind of funny, it's like a little bit of sawdust is in your brother or sister's eye, and you've got this gigantic plank and you can't see it, and he's saying, gosh, kind of strange. You claim to see into people's hearts and you seem to not be able to see this massive thing, you know, that's in your own heart. So a judgmental heart pretends to see. Third, a judgmental heart pretends to help. This one's funny. Verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me see the speck that's in your eye when you do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye, or out of your brother's eye. Um, when you became a Christian... If you realize this, when you became a Christian, you instantaneously got God as your father, and you instantaneously got other Christians as your brothers and sisters. It comes as a package. And I know in our culture, we're like, I'll take the father, I'll not take the siblings. It doesn't work that way. You get brothers and sisters. And the cool thing is, is that we're actually called to help each other. We're called to actually correct each other when we fall into sin and, and help each other to live the the commands that God's given us, to live as Jesus would have us to live. And it's a great privilege, guys, um, to be able to do that. Um, we won't really be treating each other as family until we're willing to correct each other when we're wrong, right? Because if you just see this as kind of an event you go to and stuff like that, and you see somebody else sitting, you're like, eh, none of my business, not my brother's keeper, right? But if you see this as family, you're like, whoa, you know, that reflects on our family. Let's talk about this, right? Um, in fact, I, I think about, like, there's certain people in our lives 
that have taken it upon themselves to be able to correct our children. And that's a case where I feel like they're family, you know? I first noticed it with um, my sister-in-law. One time we were hanging out, and she just starts kind of correcting our kids. And at first I was like, whoa, what's she doing? And then I'm like, oh, wait, this is cool, you know? This is cool. She's, she can parent them too, you know? Like, this is great. But for the whites are like that, you know? I feel like they could get in there and they could actually uh, correct our kids, and, and we'd love that. We're family, right? You're family when you are willing to take correction and you're willing to give correction to others when needed, right? Jesus likens it to eye surgery. Do you see what he says here? He says, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Have you ever had something stuck in your eye before? We all have, right? If something's stuck in your eye, like a little piece of wood or something like that. You can't go on with life with that, right? It is miserable. It's like all you can think about. Like the day's over until this thing comes out, right? Sins like that, guys, it makes us miserable. We can't go on without it. And, and, and so what he's saying here is that other believers are for us to help us to break free, to help us to get these things out of our lives. But he also says that a judgmental heart makes you a very scary surgeon, Okay, a very scary surgeon. He says, you know, if you're going to try and take the, the speck out of your brother's eye and you've got this plank in your own eye, you're pretending to help, but you're not helping. You're beating him up. And um, for example, if Tony here were to have a speck in his eye, right? And I've got this plank. I mean, Jesus is so great. I love how the Sermon on the Mount has tons of illustrations like this, right? We saw like flowers and birds last time. I'm going to beat him with this stick right now. Um, so imagine, you know, here I am, and I'm like, Tony, let me help you. Let me get that. And I'm, I'm whacking him with it. And I'm like, hold still. I'm trying to help you. And he's like, you're hurting me. And I'm beating him up, right? That's what happens, guys, when we're judgmental, is we, we do more harm than good. You hear people talk about how um, you know, I was really burned by the church, and I don't always know what they mean by that. But in some cases, it's this. It's that judgmental Christians, thinking they're helping, are just beating somebody up, okay? And so we need to be careful with that. We are to take the speck out, but we've got to get the log out of our own eye first, or we're going to hurt people. Um, and we could probably all remember times we did that, right? You look back, you know, maybe I don't want to bring it up, but you look back at a time when you were like, you were so sure you were helpful, and you were so sure that they were just sinfully resisting you. But it turns out that you were the one that had the problem, and you didn't see it in your own eye. I love what Jonathan Edwards said in his resolution number eight. Jonathan Edwards, he lives in the 1700s, and he wrote like 70 resolutions for his life, which I think is probably too many, because I don't know how you would keep track of 70. But the eighth one is really cool. He says that he would resolve to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been a greater sinner than himself. And that when he encountered the sins in others, he would feel as if he had committed those same sins himself and dealt with those same weaknesses and failings. He said, I will use the knowledge of their failings to promote nothing but humility and even shame in myself. And I will use the awareness of their sinfulness and weakness only as an occasion to confess my own sin and misery to God. Isn't that cool? What better place it would be if we did that? And the Spirit can help us with that. Psalm 139 says, Search me and know me, O God, and try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me. So we don't do this ourselves. We ask God to examine and show us ourselves. And then we can confront a, 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 a brother or a sister in sin and actually be helpful to them because we're coming humbly, right? We come and we say, Hey, I'm the biggest sinner in this room, but I'd really like to help you because I know how miserable it is to have sin in your life. I'd like to be a help to you. Fourth, a judgmental heart invites conflict with the world. Verse six, do not, give your, uh, do not give dogs what is holy, nor throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample you underfoot and turn and attack you. 
I have wondered for a long time how this verse fits with um, verses 1 through 5. They seem to be one unit here in his sermon here. It doesn't seem like he's changed subjects. And I've often wondered how this kind of fit together, how these, how these verses came together. Um, the most common interpretation is that um, what's going on here is that as you go out into the world and you're sharing biblical truth with people, there'll be some people that are so resistant um, to the pearls, the, 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 the truth you're giving, that you should stop. And you should stop trying to, to give it to them because the, they're going to trample on the pearls and they're going to run over you, right? And they're going to attack you. Um, and I think that's certainly true. I think it's true that we are not obligated to share the gospel with those who are openly hostile again and again. There is a place for taking a break for both of your sakes, right? Um, Jesus told his first disciples that there's a time to shake the dust off their robes and move on. But I don't think that interpretation fits really well with the first five verses, okay? Um, And I don't think that there's a break between those. And keep in mind, guys, that the word dog and pig was a severe insult in the first century. It wasn't like now. Um, Last Thursday was International Puppy Day, okay? Or National Puppy Day. And they had no, in the first century, they did not have National Puppy Day. They did not think of dogs the way we think of dogs. Dogs were something outside. Dogs were something dangerous. Pigs were something that were unclean. And so when he, when he talks about people as pigs or dogs here, it's a severe insult. And Jesus never used these words for people that resisted his teaching, although, of course, as God, he could. So it seems strange to me, guys, that after teaching us not to judge, that he would tell us to judge who out there are the dogs and the pigs. Okay? That's why I'm kind of like, how do these verses fit together? And I could be wrong about this, but this is what I'm going to give you. Recently, I came across a different interpretation of verse 6, which I think makes a lot more sense. In uh, Daniel Durrani's commentary on Sermon on the Mount, he said that what Jesus is doing here is he's using instructive irony. And so what he's basically saying is, if your criticism, if you view your criticism that you're giving to people as pearls, and you view those that you're tossing to as dogs or as pigs, they're going to trample your wisdom, and those dogs are going to perceive your attitude and attack you. So it's an idea like you don't want to do the whole thing in the verse, okay? So that Jesus is warning us not to engage the world with an attitude of superiority or judgmentalism. I think that fits the text a lot better. So it's as if he's saying, don't go sharing the gospel with people out there as if you've got pearls and you're throwing them to pigs and dogs. Like, don't go out in the world with that kind of an attitude. Judgmental heart will invite conflict. They will trample you underfoot and they will turn and attack you. And you'll have deserved it by the way. (laughs) You know, sometimes we have conflict when we share the gospel and give biblical truth, and we don't deserve it. We're innocent in that. Uh, We've given in a gracious way. The person has been hostile towards it. And when that happens, if we get trampled or we get attacked, that's our privilege to do, okay? It's our privilege to, to suffer for them and to suffer for Christ in that way. That's our privilege to give the gospel of grace in a gracious way. Sometimes it's not received. Sometimes, you know, we go away from the interaction field and kind of beat up. But we need to make sure that we never have that happen because of the way we came to them, right? And I think, guys, that this fits the immediate context better, and I think it fits Matthew 5.13 better, too, where he told us, um, you are the salt of the earth, and if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salty again? It is no longer good for anything but except to be thrown out and trampled under feet by men. The picture there is that if we aren't living the attitude of the Beatitudes and of the Sermon on the Mount, that what will happen is we'll be useless to the world and they will trample us. So same kind of idea. Judgmentalism invites conflict. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be gracious. Isn't that interesting? Always. Interesting. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. So when we bring the good news of Jesus, it's as one sinner to the other. 
We come and we say, hey, I'm the biggest pig and the worst dog in this room, right? But I have received the love of Jesus. Let me show you how. Instead of putting ourselves in that separate category that only God belongs in, the sinless category, and coming to the world as if, oh, you sinner, right? No, I'm a sinner. I've found grace. Let me show you where it is. Um, there's a pastor in, um, in Nashville, uh, Ray Ortland, and he's got there's this mantra that he does that I really love. He does this mantra. He'll say this every once in a while in church and stuff. He'll say this about himself. He'll go, I am a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. Anyone can get in on this. Isn't that awesome? I just love that. He's like, I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright because of Jesus. Anyone can get in on this. That this isn't something that I have because of some worthiness in me. Anyone can have this. Look at me. Even I got it, right? That's the attitude we need to come with. So how do we cultivate a heart of grace? Um, how do we kind of fight this sin of judgmentalism? Verse 1 and 2 actually tell us it's, it's by a better grasp of the gospel. Because, guys, what's really behind a judgmental heart? I was thinking about this week. I mean, all of us want to feel like we're okay, right? We all want to feel like we're good. We all want to feel like we're right. We all want to feel like somehow we measure up to some standard. And it doesn't matter if you're a religious person or not a religious person. You have this sense of needing to justify yourself, really, don't you? A sense of being like, I'm okay, I measure up, I'm doing what I need to do. We have that feeling in us, right? And yet there's this nagging feeling also that we don't measure up. And so we try harder. We we try harder to meet standards that we've set for ourselves. But how good is good enough? It's hard to say. How good is good enough? How much accomplishments are good enough? How much, what behavior is good enough? How do we know we're actually measuring up? I mean, at least in theme parks, guys, there's a measuring stick. And you can know if you measure up to get on that ride, right? You walk up, you stand up next to it, and if you're a cob child, you're like winning, you know, because you're tall. You get on everything when you're young. But you get on that measuring thing, and you, and you figure out, can, do I measure up to this? But guys, there is no measuring stick at home. There's none at work. There's none in your relationships. There's nowhere we can walk up and like know objectively if we're good enough. And so one of the things that human beings do to try and convince themselves that they measure up is compare themselves to one another. That's the measuring stick we do have. So we look out and we, we look for the flaws and the failings of others and we judge them the way Jesus said not to. And it's as if we're thinking that somehow our goodness is, is measured on a curve, right? You know, when you're in school, there are two ways that they could, you know, grade your class, right? It could be straight percentage, right? You get, you know, 90% or above, you got an A, right, on the test, those kinds of things. Um, or you could grade on a curve. So you want to create kind of a Hunger Games atmosphere in the class. And especially if you've got a lot of pre-med people, pre-vet people, pre-dental people, like it's a bloodbath. Nursing, pre-nursing, the scariest, right? Because all of a sudden you view each other as competition. And that's what's happening when we judge each other is, is we're basically thinking that, you know, goodness is, is graded on a curve. And the more people to the left of me on that curve, the better I'm doing. You know, those people there, oh, look at them. Like, they're disgusting. Look at their lives. Look at what they're doing. Like, I'm acing this. You know, I'm way over here on the curve. Um, and it's interesting, guys, when we look at the, the comments on Facebook that I, uh, to that post I had, how many of them related to parenting. So many of them related to parenting. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, it's probably because family's a core idol in our area, isn't it? When we think about, like, what are our core things that we tend to put before God, family would be a huge one. It's a good thing, but we make it an ultimate thing, right? Family is a core way that people try to justify themselves, don't they? Don't you? Don't I? I mean, I'll know my life is worth, worthy if I get married, if I have kids, if I raise them well, 
And I give them every advantage they need to have. And, and I'll know that my life is worthy if they turn out well. There's so much pressure on how they turn out as a reflection on me. If I'm a good mom or a good dad, I know I'm worthy. And so it makes sense that the most common way that people are judging in our culture is around parenting, right? Because it helps us to feel like we measure up. If we can see some people that are really subpar parents, it makes us feel better about ourselves, right? Um, and it can be in any area. Any area that you find yourself judging others regularly is probably the area that you're trying to justify yourself, whether it's looks or career or education or your religious righteousness, right? That's an area you're trying to justify yourself. Judging others is, is really rooted in kind of an anxious longing for justification, an anxious longing to feel good and right and measure up. And you know, guys, that longing is a good longing. Do you guys realize that? That longing to want to feel like you're good, you're right, and you measure up is actually a good longing. It's we're looking for it in the wrong place, right? We're looking for it by comparing with others. It's, it's the wrong place we're looking. Jesus told a parable about it. He told a parable to people that were, thought they were righteous and were trying to, and had contempt for others. He said this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So two guys are coming in the temple to pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Probably praying out loud, right? Or even this tax collector. You see what he's doing? He's getting himself on the curve there. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But, but the tax collector, in contrast, he stood afar off. He wouldn't even lift his head to heaven. And he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you that that man the tax collector, went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What's going on here? What's going on here, guys, is that we're not judged based on a curve. We're not judged based on our competition with other people. We're actually judged by God's law. Turns out it's a straight grade, not a curve. And it's according to God's law. And according to God's law, it has to be 100%. We're all failing on the straight grade, okay? There is no curve, which is a cool thing because you're not in competition with your neighbor, it turns out. You're in competition with God's law, and you're losing, okay? But it is, there is something, like, relaxing about knowing you're not in competition with other people. Um, and so we are graded by God's commands, and it turns out that we'll never measure up to that standard alone. That sense of being good and right and righteous and measuring up, you'll never find that in your own performance, That's actually called self-righteousness. And I know that term sounds horrible, right? Well, it's looking for your righteousness in yourself. It's self-righteousness. And it never works. And God's law, guys, makes that clear. I mean, just read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and see if you measure up to God's law. It'd be a good place to start. We don't. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It shows us our sin. It wasn't meant to be something that it's a measuring stick that you could somehow, you know, work your way up to and somehow get measured up to it. Um, it, But the cool thing is, is that righteousness is given as a gift. Romans 3.21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? So you're not graded on a curve, you're graded on a straight grade. That straight grade is God's law. You're not measuring up to God's law, none of us are. 
And the, 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 the good news is, is that Jesus has measured up in our place. Jesus came, lives a perfect life, and he basically throughout his life, he stood up straight in his righteousness and measured up to God's law, fulfilled it completely. And he did that not for himself. He's got nothing to prove. He did that for you. That righteousness that he measured up to, he says, this is yours. This is a gift for you. You could, you could have this as a gift. And so when you first come to place your trust in Jesus instead of your own goodness, you get united to Christ. And the cool thing is, is because you're united to Christ, just like a marriage union, everything that he owns is yours. Everything that you own is his. And so there's this great exchange where he receives all your sin and you receive all his righteousness. It's a great exchange for us, not for him, right? Um, we brought our sin. He brought his righteousness. And so all of our sin, guys, got transferred to Jesus. If you're trusting in him, transferred to Jesus. Jesus takes all those sins up that hill to that cross, dies for him, pays that debt, is raised the third day. And the really cool thing, guys, is that your judgment day has moved from being in the future to the past. If you're living in a religious system, you think about your judgment day in the future. Okay? You think about like, well... And we'll see how my life turns out. You know, we'll see how I do. I'm doing my best. We'll see what happens. You know, judgment day is in the future, right? If you're a non-religious person, your judgment day is every day. Every day you think about how you measure up and whether you're good enough and things like that. But the gospel tells us that if we trust in Christ, our judgment day is in the past. It happened on the cross when he said, it is finished. Your judgment day has passed. Happened in 33 AD on a Roman cross. But that's not all. Because it's an exchange, right? Our sin went to him. His righteousness came to us. Um, and the cool thing is, guys, if you're trusting in Christ, that right now God considers you to be as righteous as Jesus. It, it, uh, other authors have talked about God's righteousness being like, kind of like a robe, right? That, that Christ's righteousness is something you're wearing now as a robe so that he sees you as as righteous as Jesus. And so instead of trying to justify ourselves and compare ourselves endlessly to other people and judging them, we can just rest, guys. We can rest and enjoy the fact that we are justified, that we are good enough and right enough and righteous enough, not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus. Like that feeling of being okay is a feeling he gives. In Jesus, you can feel, this is cool, you can feel completely righteous without a hint of pride and without a hint of judging. Isn't that cool? Because it's not self-righteousness. It's his righteousness. You can feel completely righteous without a hint of pride or a hint of judgment because it's his righteousness, not ours. I just love this, guys. The gospel breaks our judgmental hearts. You guys have a judgmental heart? You guys deal with that? I deal with that. Gospel breaks my judgmental heart, right? Because it shows me, number one, it shows me I'm so bad I got Jesus killed. So I'm not like one to go around and tell other people what their problems are, right? Like, I'm so bad I got Jesus killed. But it also tells me that I'm so loved that Jesus was pleased to die for me. Isn't that awesome? I mean, if that's captivated your heart, if you're just like in awe of God's grace like that, you don't have time to be judging other people, right? Judgmentalism comes from a lack of joy in the gospel. People that are blown away by the grace of God can't be judgmental at the same time. You fall into this time when you're being judgmental and you're really kind of dwelling on the sins of other people, remind yourself of the gospel. Because we have the message, check this out, we have the message that can create the most gracious, least judgmental people on earth. We just need to soak in it, rehearse it, remember it, live in it, beat it into our heads, as Luther would say, until it oozes grace all over everybody around us. That part I added. 
So as we take communion, guys, we're going to remember the great exchange. We're going to, um, as if you're a believer during these next couple songs, even if it's something that you just came to embrace today, you can come forward, take the bread. It's gluten-free, so you don't need to worry about that. And take the cup of juice and take it back to your seat. And what we're going to do is we're going to remember. We're going to remember this great exchange. We're going to remember the bread that symbolizes Christ's body, his real body, just like you have a body that was broken on the cross for your sins. We're going to remember with this cup, his blood, his shed blood that covers over every bit of shame that you have. Every part that might lead you to want to, you know, look at somebody else's sin to take your eyes off yours, covers all that with his blood. And let's remember, too, that our union with Christ doesn't just make us righteous, but it also is a shared life with Jesus. That when you got united with Christ by faith, you got connected to him like, like a vine and branches so that his life can flow into you and through you. And so let's remember as we take communion, it's a true communion. This is a time to ask God to to share with you the life of Jesus so that it's true spiritual food. It's a true time of receiving the Spirit afresh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have a way out for us. (laughs) We don't like being judgmental people. I think I can speak for everybody here. We don't enjoy it. There's a certain taste to it. There's a certain kind of, you know, desire, juiciness to it in the beginning. But, Lord, it leaves us empty. It leaves us filthy. It leaves us um, just longing for something better. And you have something better, Lord. You have a better way for us to feel right. And that's being righteous in your Son. And we pray, Lord, that everyone here would have a deep sense of their being covered by the righteousness of Jesus. I pray that no one would leave here wondering or still wandering around without that covering over them. I pray, Lord, for anybody that's here that doesn't have that, that they would just call out to you and say, Lord, cover me with the righteousness of Jesus. You know, I Don't leave me naked in my sin. Cover me. Lord, we pray that they would come and turn from their sin and desire to do that. Lord, I pray for those who are here that came with that intellectual belief, but need to feel that belief, Lord. We pray that everyone that would leave here with that sense of wonder at the righteousness of Jesus being theirs. And we pray, Lord, as we take communion, that it would be a, um, a time of true reflection on the death of your son, Lord. We have so much to be thankful for. And we look forward to the day of seeing our righteousness in sight, seeing Jesus with our eyes. And Lord, we know that this is an appetizer at that time. This is an appetizer for the coming of the kingdom. And so we pray that as we take it, we would remember that. That a day is coming soon when you said you would build a feast for us and that we'd all sit down and enjoy your presence with one another. Thank you, in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.